0: would have thought he'd shot Bambi or something the way some of the chicks carried on. And Mary was the worst. Oh, no, Verby, Verby was even worse than that, as if she hadn't spent the first 18 years of her life cruising the meat department at the supermarket and gorging on 15-cent burgers and pepperoni pizza like every other teenager in America. And Alfredo, with his meat as murder rap and how could you just slaughter one of your fellow creatures and live with that kind of karma and blah, blah, blah. It was a joke, it really was. All they talked about was going back to the land, living simple, dropping out. And yet if there wasn't a supermarket within ten miles, they'd have starved to death by now, every one of them. There were fish in the river, there was game in the woods, and so what if it was out of season? So what if he'd wound up with a doe that couldn't have weighed more than 90 pounds dressed out? It was meat, free meat, and it could feed everybody on the place for a week at least. Did they really expect to go through life choking down soy patties and eggplant on rye? Falafel, tofu, kebabs, for Christ's sake. Shit, they should have given him a medal.
1: T.C. Boyle is the author of The Road to Wellville, World's End, Water Music, and Drop City. His latest novel has been nominated for a 2003 National Book Award. Welcome to the show, Tom. Glad to be here, Rick. Tom, a lot of your work seems to center around the idea of utopia, your characters and through your novels have pursued various versions of utopia, haven't they? That's true. And uh,
0: sometimes attached to uh, utopian visions are gurus. And I realize, you know, looking back on my work, how distrustful of gurus I am. In fact, we'll probably make a nice little um, term paper for somebody to write about the gurus in my work and how they um, lead people astray. I guess I... I, um, believe pretty firmly in making individual choices and decisions and not giving yourself over to some greater power.
1: You're not a fan of the authority figure then. Yeah, I'm afraid not. <laughs> Very succinctly
0: put, I think that's that's probably true.
1: The problem with utopia, any utopia, is that while it requires work, it inspires laziness, doesn't it?
0: It depends. I mean, uh, and by the way, I was never given full credit for bringing down the evil empire of the Soviet Union. I am the one who did that, you know. It wasn't Ronald Reagan.
1: How did you do that? I, I,
0: I... I wrote um, um, a story called The Overcoat 2, which is a retelling of Gogol's The Overcoat, but it's set in, uh, in the evil empire of, uh, of the Soviet Union. So I'm the one who brought it down. I mean, they were so humiliated by my satire, it came crumbling right down.
1: Doesn't that make you an authority figure and a guru?
0: (laughs) Boy, I hope not. (laughs) I think I'm the guy kicking at the wall outside.
1: Well, we might have to learn to distrust yourself.
0: Um, That's what they told Joe Stalin, too, you know? (laughs) And he killed them. (laughs) My hero in this regard, by the way, um, is Idi Amin, the late Idi Amin. Uh, There was a film uh, made about him, a documentary in the 70s, and Edie was sitting there talking to the documentarian, and uh, behind him was a bookshelf with bleached human skulls on it. And he would just reach back once in a while in the midst of his conversation, pull out the skull and look at it and say to his friends sitting there, Remember that son of a bitch? i put it back. Yes. This I'll, is what I want to, to do, actually, with my critics.
1: <laughs> I'll remember that as I review your next novel. <laughs> Alas, poor Rick, instead of York. Yeah. In utopia, you people are the problem, aren't they? Always the problem. I suppose
0: in, in a utopia, but in any society. And I guess uh, as this novel evolved, I, I was talking about how communities do uh, become formed. How did we all get here? Why? How did we get sitting in the studio? I just came from San Francisco. How did those buildings get there? Somebody started somewhere. Um, in a pioneering way and took some trees down and built the first log hut. And so this novel takes us to Alaska, which, by the way, in 1970 was the last time you could homestead anywhere in America. Um, that is, just go out there, find land, and do what you want to do. So, yes, I think in any community there are uh, constructive and destructive and perhaps parasitic forces. And in the two communities you discover in Drop City, on the one hand, the communards of the Drop City Commune, which relocates to Alaska from Sonoma County, and the uh, people in my fictional town of Boynton on the Yukon River. uh, uh, These societies kind of shake out eventually because we have another factor (laughs) involved in, in trying to build our utopia, and that is nature and the environment. And what could be a more loving environment than Alaska in the summer when it is light out all night long? And a little uh, less loving uh, in
1: uh, the winter when it's dark all night, uh, all day long. Your communards in Drop City do a, an environmental number on their own world back in Sonoma, don't they?
0: Yes. And, and by the way, uh, Rick, I've never been to a commune. My um, aim is not to dis-communes or to re- revise history or anything like that. I'm simply... Working with themes, as I think you know, but I'm trying to make this clear for the listeners, uh, and following these themes to see what will happen. Um, Yeah, uh, I read a book by Richard Fairfield written in 1966 Communes USA. He was an advocate of communes. He lived in one. He traveled all the communes in America and wrote about them. And in fact, um, one commune, was broken down by the law in this very way. They had substandard housing. They didn't have proper uh, sewage. And they, uh, finally, uh, they were fined and brought to court every day on and on and on until finally uh, they were closed down. In my telling, in my fictional uh, Drop City, um, the guru of this particular um, um, commune on uh, the Russian River has inherited a ranch from his dead parents. And so anybody can come and do what they like. Um, he also, though, when he was a, a teenager, had spent some time in Alaska in the summers with his uncle. And so once they're locked out of Sonoma, he says, hey, man, let's go to Alaska. It's beautiful. It's a land of milk and honey. There's salmon in the streams. I mean, berries growing in the summer. It's great. We got to go. And all of uh, his, his fellow brothers and sisters of the commune thought, yeah, man, that's groovy. Let's go to Alaska.
1: And so... We find out what happens to them as winter comes on. The community in Alaska is in many ways a more ideal commune than the commune that arrives. They're living in harmony with nature. They're living in a fair amount of harmony with one another. They have something to do.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, it's, it's interesting for me to juxtapose the two communities and, as I said earlier, bring them together. Um, I learned a lot about uh, the, the the bush of Alaska through reading, but I also went up and snooped around a bit too. And um, I just wondered if it would ever be possible again in human history, uh, you know, I mean, before the plague decimates us and brings us down to one in a billion, um, to live off the land in that way. So I've created a hero here. His name is Sess Harder. He's uh, he was completely withdrawn from society, as the hippies do. They want to drop out of consumer society. So did he. He wants no rules, no regulations, nobody to bug him. So he is living off the land as a trapper. Um, the the incident in which he meets his wife was suggested to me by something that actually happened as reported in um, uh, uh, Coming Into the Country, John McPhee's great, great book about of reportage about Alaska, published in 76, Um In my telling, based on what I learned from McPhee, Pamela, uh, one of the five point-of-view characters in this novel, um, is living in Anchorage, working in an office. She's gone to college. She's in her 20s, and she's uh, late 20s, and she's thinking um, she's tired of this life of the city. And so she wants to go and live in the bush and live primitively and drop out. Not in the way of hippies. She's completely straight, nothing like that. But she wants, as the hippies do, to drop out. So she interviews... Three men, three bush rats who each have his own little trap line and his own little cabin and so on. And she goes and spends three days with each of them and is going to decide which one uh, she will take because she needs a man to support her in the most essential way um, the way of living off the land. Um, and so it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to write those scenes.
1: And they're a really fantastic scene with, with Walpole, Mr. Walpole. <laughs>
0: Howard Walpole, uh, for those who really know my work well, is a character in my story, Termination Dust, which is the lead story in After the Plague, Um, as are a couple of the other minor characters in in this novel. The fun of it is Termination Dust is set uh, around 2000, the year 2000, but this book is set in 1970, so I, I got Howard Walpole and these guys, who were old men, in termination dust, And I pictured them as younger guys, and they're they're minor characters, and they're the foils for Cess, of course he's he is nuts about Pamela as she spent the three days with him, no sex of course un- unlike the hippies who are you know espousing free love um um and he has to deliver her over to Howard Walpole, and he's just completely nuts about it. What's going on here? Will she choose me or
1: will she choose him? One of the interesting literary techniques you use in this book is the reader's perspective versus the character's perspective. We've seen how all of this played out, and the characters haven't, and it's really a delightful and enjoyable technique. Could you talk about how you do that?
0: Yeah, thanks so much. I I, I really like the fact, Rick, that you uh, see that in the book. Um, yes, it is an historical novel like other historical novels I've written. Uh, We know the outcome. I like to meditate on history and find things in history, the road to Wellville, for instance, with its obsession with food fads, um, in order to reflect on who we are, how we got here, what it means. And uh, I I think um, in this novel I hit on the idea of point of view. As I said, there are five main point of view characters. So um, there is a slight distance between how the reader perceives what the character is thinking and what the reader knows about history, and I think it makes for a kind of amusing and interesting tension, as in, for instance, a dramatic monologue. Almost all dramatic monologues, uh, uh, you know, uh, Browning's, you know, uh, *My Last Duchess*, for instance, work in this way: that the speaker is talking to somebody in an, in an eye narration, and and um, what the speaker is saying always has to be revu- reviewed by the the auditor or the reader. And I think it works this way, even though this is not first person, it's close third person. I think you step back, for instance, from the from the reading we gave at the outset, this is the character Ronnie, also known as Pan, and um, his attitude, we're in his mind. We are part of his attitude, and yet we're also apart from it and reading and trying to evaluate um, perhaps how far overboard he's going at at a, at a given juncture, and I think that gives the book some of its tension and verisimilitude, and also... As you observed in your review, um, it allows me to look at this familiar period of our history uh, through a new, uh, new lenses um, and, and not to be hyperbolic and satiric and ironic. You know, everyone heard that I was writing this book and they figured, OK, boil hippies, Alaska, it's going to be this um, runaway, uh, knock them dead satire.
1: It's been done before. I want to do something totally different. The humor comes out of this distancing between the reader and the knowledge. It's it's really quite enjoyable. One of the things that I found really interesting was the perception, too, that's always there of the future, because these people are creating a commune. They're creating something that's plummeting forward into a future that they have some maybe vague idea about. Maybe they'll be joint Puffing Jetsons or something. And we are living in that future. And <laughs> we are not in the, – there's no joint Puffing Jetsons that I know <laughs> of.
0: That's what's so much fun about um, my obsession with history. I, I, in college, I started as a music major. Uh, couldn't handle that. Drifted into history. I'd always loved that as a high school kid. Uh, then discovered English. And I wound up as a double major in English and history. And history always fascinates me for this very reason. How did we get here? And um, I think there is a kind of tension in this book and some of my others. We are amused because we know what the outcome is down the road. We know who these people are now, I- even though they were in their 20s in 1970. Now we can see them and imagine who made it and who didn't, who's still in Alaska, what's it, what it's like.
1: Um, yeah, it's great. great to think about. One of the things that I also found interesting too was your huge cast. I mean this is a – aside from your five point of view characters, you have a number of major characters and handling all these characters and keeping them clear and point, and moving them around the landscape and bringing them together. It seems very complex. Is it something that's organic that grows as you write or is it – or are you sitting there with a giant computer database figuring out who goes where and drawing maps with pins?
0: You guessed it. Choice A. It's totally organic. It just happens. Um, um, I think perhaps, uh, you know, films, TV writers and so on, uh, maybe even thriller writers, maybe even vampire writers. Maybe they do plot things out and, and, you know, put each scene on a big bulletin board and think about it's way too abstract for me. It would be too predictable that way. I don't know what anything will be, any story, anything I'm doing. I just am absorbed in some material that I love. I want to express that to you, and I don't quite know how it will happen. One day it begins, and I just follow it. And, um, yes, it is a juggling act. Um, I, I'm not worried about it consciously. It just is happening, and perhaps when I'm not writing. you know, And when I'm not writing, by the way, I don't write all day every day. When I'm done after a few hours of work, I just go do something that has nothing to do with writing whatsoever, physical labor in the yard, hiking, uh, drinking in dark bars, whatever it is. But it allows the unconscious to resolve these problems, and I just follow it day by day. I don't know exactly how to tell you uh, how it works. It just does. It, it, it just grows organically. Um, obviously, at some point, you make leaps ahead, and you understand uh, thematic elements and uh, even plot points. But that just um, – you don't know until you get there.
1: Could you talk a little bit about how you decide whether a story is a short story or a gigantic, sprawling historical novel? Hmm.
0: Yeah, good, good question. Um, to me, everything is a story, whether it's two pages, twenty-five, two hundred fifty, five hundred. You know, I mean, it's 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 all stories, and they work in the same way. A short story is built in scenes. A novel is built in scenes that build the chapters. You know, it's it's, just, it's the same thing. Um, I consciously know when I'm done writing stories, uh, and I begin to think about something that might be more complex and larger. That's all. It might require more thought, more uh, more research to begin with. Um, I've just finished. I have a new novel coming in the fall. It's uh, on September 13th. It's called The Inner Circle, and it deals with a subject that uh, probably no one would, would be much interested in uh, but I'm an artist, and I just follow my own my own way, and I don't think about commerce so much. It's about sex. Sex <laughs> beginning to end. It's a, a, here we have free love. I went back to uh, examine where this concept is coming from. So it's, it's a novel built around Dr. Kinsey's sex researches in the 40s and 50s of the last century. It's my first eye narrative since Budding Prospects, and it really lit me up. I've invented a character who works with Dr. Kinsey on his sex researches. But also, I've finished the next book beyond that, which is a new collection of 15 stories called Tooth and Claw. And so, I've just finished a period of writing stories just before I came on tour two weeks ago and and mailed it off, and I'm now thinking about another longer project. So, it does seem to work in cycles.
1: Your longer projects tend to um, encompass uh, periods of history that are very distinct, how do you choose this? Do, does, do you research? Do, do you read just randomly and latch on to something? Or do you consciously make a decision, I'm going to write about that?
0: Hmm. Uh, things happen serendipitously. For instance, uh, The Road to Wellville, aforementioned. Oh, or, or you, you, lo- you liked World's End. You talked about World's End. Um, I came to write that book because I'd grown up in New York. I'd never been west of the Hudson River till I was 21. Um, but I was such a punk. I was just such an utter punk. I never listened to anything. I didn't realize that the history happened right outside the window. I mean, I didn't, didn't care, didn't know. Then I moved to California, and I went back one summer with the idea of writing something about the history of New York, in sort of in the way that Drop City takes us into the wilderness and people build cabins. Well, yeah, I mean, Manhattan was just an an island with, with, with water sources and deer and bears and, you know, um how could that play out how did we get here so i went back and spent an entire summer living there and researching the history and going to all the historical sites and so on that i'd ignored as a punk and in the process of doing that i began to have an idea of what a story what story might grow from that and so again first line comes and i begin um the road to wellville um a friend gave me a book called the Nuts Among the Berries by Ronald M. Deutsch. Now out of print, <laughs> but you can find it in the library. It's a hilarious um, uh, history, purposely done in a, in a funny way, of the health food movement in Europe and the U.S. And every character in it was a lunatic. I mean, if it's Sylvester Graham, uh, uh, the C.W. Post, Dr. Kellogg, whom I chose to write about. Uh, in fact, uh, my friend uh, is a is a, a filmmaker. And he gave me the book, saying, "There's something in here that's going to delight you. There's something you'll write about in here." And he was right. He said to me, though, um, by the way, um, please don't don't write about Dr. Kellogg. I, I might want to make a film about him someday. I said, "Kevin, no, no, no way. I wouldn't, wouldn't consider it." But you know, as we went on in this project, um, I realized that Dr. Kellogg was my man because, again, as we talked earlier, he was such an autocrat, so cocksure of himself, such a guru to everybody, you know, straightening their lives out. And so. As the project evolved, I said, Kevin, you know, i got good and bad news. The good news is, uh, the bad news is, uh, I am writing about Dr. Kellogg. But the good news is, when the book comes out, you'll get a fat, fat, and he said, check. I said, no, no, a credit, a credit, and so he does. So, you know, it, sometimes things happen serendipitously. And again, I had no idea what I would do or that it would be Kellogg. I went to Battle Creek, sniffed around, looked at a lot of stuff that I didn't really use. Um, With this book, Drop City, Uh, I went to Alaska. I knew that I would be writing about the area around Fairbanks because some of my research had led me there. But I also had the opportunity to go to this small Inuit village on the Kobuk River. No idea whether I'd use this information or not. And in fact, it plays a very small part towards the end of the book. It's only mentioned. There's a couple of pages set there. So I don't really know where or what. I just absorb things and let it flow.
1: One of your novels—now, you're a a guy who's not overly enamored of the world of genre fiction. Yet, one of your novels could be shelved right next to (laughs) Philip K. Dick, and uh, that would be A Friend of the Earth. What led you to visit the apocalypse? Well, thank you, Rick.
0: Um, uh, Let's see. I have never read any science fiction. I'm not much of a fan of genre writing uh, because— it doesn't do enough for me. It doesn't do what literature does for me. A good literary book can do what genre writing does. That is, give you a great story and be entertaining. That's the bottom line, and we all have to do that. That's the bottom line of my aesthetic. But there's more to it. There's the sophistication and the beat of the language. There are, there's the texture. There's, there, there's the depth of characterization. There's all sorts of things that I'm interested in that genre doesn't give me. So um, I've never really been interested in it. Um, nonetheless, uh, You're referring to A Friend of the Earth, my novel previous to Drop City. This is a book growing out of my concern about uh, our destruction of the environment and our overpopulation of the Earth as an animal species um, using up its resources. So I hit on the idea of setting it in two periods. In the 1980s, when my hero, Ty Tierwater, is um, involved in ecotage, and is trying to bring down the big corporations and uh, going out into the wilderness and uh, driving spikes into trees and so on so that the lumber company can't can't get them. And very much inspired by Earth First and, uh, and other groups like it. But then I felt, what fun to project into the future. So the other portion of the book is set in 2025 when... Uh, all this has come true and the earth really has turned to shit. Global warming, it's raining, you know, it's flooding, it's drying out. Uh, everything is crazy. The animal species are gone. Um, and yes, I was quite surprised, uh, in the middle of the tour to come back and look at my website and see that the fans were arguing over, well, is it science fiction or not? <laughs> I don't know. Science fiction to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's set in the future, uh, Gulliver's Travels. I mean, is that science fiction? Uh, it, it's just that it um, um, takes you to a different world thematically. Uh, it doesn't have to do with machines. You know, uh, we don't have uh, in *A in Friend of the Earth*. I'm not interested in creating uh, uh, machines or a vision of the future or how we might live. Um, much more, I'm interested in uh, what changes might be wrought in the way we live now. Um, it's so interesting that. Right now, we're living in the science fiction future of what was like the, the science fiction films of 25, 30 years ago. Blade Runner was optimistic, uh, you know, as far as what L.A. is going to look like. Oh, you know? sure. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we've passed by 1984 and 2001, and we're headed straight out to the year 2525.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, only like the airports uh, around the country where you have to get on the little train and the mechanical voice tells you and the little doors close and every... I mean, it's just straight out of uh, the science fiction of 30 years ago, films. We're here. We're we're doing it. So, you know, it's it's an interesting question. Um, uh, I don't consider the work science fiction. It's just uh, my... My Irv, it's just what I'm
1: doing. Let's talk a little bit about literature, the state of literature. There's a couple of interesting things that have just been happening recently. Um, Stephen King won a Lifetime Achievement Award and made a speech that was more than a little controversial. I was present for it. And the New York Times recently decided that it needed to cover more nonfiction because that was really where it's at.
0: Well... uh uh, to, to address Stephen King he's a friend I love him he's he's a great man he's done great things for literature and I'm pleased that he got that award um, as far as the New York Times I hadn't been aware of this my my daughter was telling me about it um, there's a new editor Chip McGrath has stepped down uh, but Chip was the one who elevated non-fiction over fiction to begin with uh, prior to his regime uh when you open the table contents, fiction started and then nonfiction. Uh, I guess it's uh, it depends upon the viewpoint of, of the editor. What fiction has that nonfiction doesn't is that the fiction writers are artists and they can be glamorous. Uh, for instance, at the National Book Awards that you were talking about, um, the big prize is fiction, and that's last. So there's poetry, there's children's literature, there's nonfiction, and the big element is fiction. I think that will always be the case um, simply because artists interest us in a way that non-artists do not, um, that journalists do not. The writer, the rock star, the film star can be larger than life, can be, um, can be a kind of idol. And I don't think that's going to happen with the guy who's writing the biography of Warren G. Harding, you know? So I'm not that concerned.
1: <laughs> now, are you saying that Hunter Thompson isn't an artist? No, not at all. And and, and there are many
0: many <laughs> things that cross the boundaries. Look at uh, Tom Wolfe, who begins as a sure. brilliant journalist and and writes fiction as well. No, no, no. But I mean, um, mm, a good book is a good book of any genre, you know, or any any quality or any type or mode. Uh, what? It, well, look at memoirs. I mean, memoirs are nonfiction, and look at the um, tremendous vogue for memoirs over the past decade or so.
1: And, uh, and they can be gripping as all get. Oh, sure, absolutely. Now, is it true? Do you really maintain your own website? Yes, I do. My God. Did and you by the design
0: way, it? No. No, 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 no. I'm a computer nerd altogether. Uh, not a nerd. A, ner- I, a nerd implies knowledge. No, I'm just a, a Luddite. I mean, I, I barely know what I'm doing in life. Um, the key here, Rick, and why my website exceeds all other writers and why we get 5,000 hits a day and why it's so much fun, the teenage sons. Really? My son Milo brought the site up Uh when he was bored over summer vacation during his junior year in high school he invented it uh the first year we had 20,000 hits now we get that every 4 days um i uh, don't know the language i don't know how to do it they set it up we have my posse my posse it's it's my daughter my two sons and her and my daughter's boyfriend they're geniuses they're design geniuses um they keep it fun they run the contests they do all of that however um i Uh, have a a column that comes up about monthly what's new tell them what i'm doing in my life where i'm going to be and i do cruise the message board and if i'm asked direct questions often i'll stop in and and make comments when i when i want to although the fans know much more about my life than i do they answer the questions of everybody else they've attached their own website tcball.net to tcball.com and that website every breath i've ever taken since birth is recorded there the germans have their own version of it i mean it goes on and on and on and it's um it's fascinating to me and somewhat humbling too because in the past when i or other writers would 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 put out a book or or more likely a story in a magazine um you know you, it's it's good. They send you a couple of copies. You look at it. You feel great. You know, you might reread it. You're very proud. You feel great. And maybe six months later, the magazine will forward you a couple of letters from people who usually didn't like it or want to point out something inaccurate. But nonetheless, you know, the fans are there. You have an audience. A lot different now. I don't even see, I haven't even got the magazine yet. And they have already read the story three times. They're dissecting it, arguing about it. So if in the past we writers could think, yeah, we're writing for a kind of vague audience and they'll get it someday. And, uh, you know, now we know that people are waiting with bated breath. uh, And it is kind of humbling, but also it's rewarding to to see what they have to say um, and how they interpret things. Uh, It's like automatic publication in a way, you know, automatic feedback.
1: That's great. We've been talking with T.C. Boyle. His latest novel is Drop City. It's now out as a trade paperback. Thanks, Tom.
0: Thanks, Rick. A pleasure.